VegCast. Four. I am Vance, back with you again for another full menu of VegCast. A full menu from first to last, VegCast. Yes, we are back again with you for VegCast 44. Uh, You may have wondered why this did not come out at the end of April as promised, and it turned out there was an event uh, right around the beginning of May that I was involved in in Baltimore. Uh, which I'll include a link to that in the show notes if anyone is that curious. Uh, But it was a big event that basically took over all my extra time, and I know I'm going to have to schedule around that in the future. In fact, I think this may have happened uh, to some extent last year, but this time I made a note of it. And at any rate, we are back with a full menu of great podcastery vegetariana for you this time. We're going to be talking tofu with Gene He of Nature Soy, a tofu manufacturer here in Philadelphia that's uh, one of the largest tofu companies in the entire East Coast of North America, and find out what makes tofu tick. Uh, We will also have, of course, a science fact for you, Uh, this one about factory farming, where the fact itself is not quite as significant as where this is coming from. And we'll have music from VegCast faves Maggie, Pierce, and EJ uh, spinning another tune of theirs. All that's coming up, so please sit back, relax, kick off your shoes, and enjoy another edition of Okay, as we're getting started here, let me remind you that this podcast is sponsored by Temptation Vegan Ice Cream, the world's greatest non-dairy ice cream. You can check them out at GoTemptation.com. And speaking of soy products, uh, Nature Soy is a company here in Philadelphia. I first encountered them at our local Whole Foods when they were doing a demo. And uh, after previous demos that I had seen in store where uh, different manufacturers come in uh, with their own representatives and kind of set up in the store and try to pitch their product. Uh, I've had some experience with that, especially with uh, asking them, you know, is it vegan? Is it vegetarian? And they usually can answer the vegetarian question, not so much uh, with the vegan question. And just Recently, I had uh, had somebody that was demonstrating a chili sample uh, that they were pitching this vegan chili, uh, and this was a store employee, actually, this time that was pitching the vegan chili and talking about uh, all the great advantages of vegan chili, and they had some that was plain and some with cheese on it. I said, is the cheese vegan? Oh, yeah, sure, it's this you know, the, that typical cheese that actually has casein in it. And so uh, I was kind of wary approaching this demo that Nature Soy was putting on because they had uh, some tofu slices. They had some different products that were uh, cheese-like, and I was asking whether it was vegan. And uh, the guy there was very knowledgeable and started expounding on how they make the product 
And uh, I said, you know, this guy is, uh, <laughs> he can talk about soy, he can talk about tofu, and uh, he's very knowledgeable about the whole vegan angle. So uh, we set up a time where I could actually go to Nature Soy, see the tofu being made, which was uh, kind of an exciting thing. It's like a, almost a vegetarian mecca. So let's go over there. We're going to start off. Here we are right now. You can hear it coming up, the actual sound of uh, the factory floor, and we'll try to get just some snatches of conversation there as we hear about the process. First right here, you can hear the floor being hosed down, uh, which happens periodically. And now I am asking about the uh, soybeans that are being rinsed and being ground and uh, you'll hear Jim Ho saying that they are ground into a slurry. So that may give you some idea of what it was like to be there right on the factory floor while tofu was being made. I was wearing a hairnet, I should point out, uh, but I was able to remove that as we stepped back into the main office to talk a little more quietly and circumspectly about how tofu is made and sold. We're right here, You're right here. sitting now in the facility yeah. that makes the one, tofu one, on one, Yeah, one of the larger ones in the country even. Wow. But tofu is a, it's relatively small industry, you know. I guess so. You so, see a lot of it around now, though. You have it, it yes. makes you wonder how. Yeah. So let me just start there then. I'm, I was going to ask you where, just about where does your, the stuff that leaves here... Where does it get distributed? That it uh... mm, there are two things. One is that the places that we know, mm -hmm. uh, and also there is another category: is the place that we don't know. Huh? <laughs> the places we know is where we we distribute ourselves, mm -hmm. and there are there are also distributors get our product and they distribute to places that we don't know. Okay, I have uh, had people saying that in Seattle they have seen our product. I said. I have never sent any product to Seattle, okay. although we did have a uh, 
a distributor that has a, uh, <clears throat> a national distribution capability that gets some of our product. That's probably how it gets it over there. Wow. And uh, some seen our product in Boston. We never, we don't do send our product to Boston right. ourselves. We send, uh, you know, the, the, the area that we know is uh, from New York to Florida. That's north and south. And then uh, going to the west, uh, we've gone as far as Minnesota, you know, Chicago, So tofu, it, it doesn't uh, suffer from traveling from here to Minnesota or here to Seattle? It's just keep it refrigerated? Or? It doesn't, it, yeah, the tofu itself doesn't suffer, but the the the, the, uh, the pocket does get suffer because the shipping cost is well, very yeah. high, right. you know. So nowadays, uh, the uh, the gasoline price and everything is going so high. So and tofu is a type of product that is not a very high value. You know, I mean, you don't have a big profit margin. To oh yeah, it's a very very thin profit margin uh, product. Right. And uh, so the shipping cost. Yeah. Is uh, it's a very it's basically very sensitive to every penny. On the way, yeah, on its way to uh, to the to the consumers' uh, uh, hands, right. you know. So it, it becomes a problem when the shipping cost is uh, increasing, like we have seen in the past couple of years. That yeah. really, really hampers the uh, the progress. So, are you looking more aggressively at, at finding opportunities locally that you might have not noticed before to try to keep, you know, get as much of the the weight of the distribution around here so you don't have to be sending it off far and wide or what well, the strategy? Yeah, both. It's it's a both way. We're still looking into, of course, the first thing we look at the uh, local market, you know, we still have a lot of, a lot of room to, uh, to grow in the uh, local market. We're still not in every Whole Foods in the uh, Mid-Atlantic area. We're only mm -hmm. in a few of them. Uh, it took a long time to get into the market, uh, you know, as uh, everybody probably didn't realize. And then uh, we still have to get, you know, to get the product into its store. Right. It's still a lot of. Uh, so it's mainly obstacles. like Whole Foods and health food stores. I mean, are, have you got into any of the mainstream? Like well, we shop, yeah, right. We, we got chain. into uh, the mainstream. We got into the uh, the giant. Giant, great. Mostly, we our strongest market is the uh, ethnic, the ethnic market. Mm -hmm. And now, if you go around, you see a lot of these, uh, the uh, huge size ethnic uh, grocery stores, supermarkets, and we are very strong in those mm -hmm. uh, Asian markets. So, down in Chinatown, would, is there a lot of your tofu down there, or are there a lot of little tofu makers who you know will just make enough for their own market or their own restaurant or how does that usually work? It's practically in Chinatown here uh, in Philadelphia it's practically just us. Oh really? There's one other little um, tofu maker that's you know mm -hmm. fits in what you were talking about but uh, its product is not very widely uh, uh, or it's not very well received mm -hmm. by the consumer because uh, of a lot of factors mostly is related to quality um, quality control quality and uh, those type of things mm -hmm. you know uh, so but I I'm sure you have a high quality product I mean I've eaten it myself mm -hmm. it's a high quality tofu what, what is it in the manufacturing of tofu that that I mean we we went in and heard some of the 
sounds and saw some of the process, what what is it about that process, you know, where along the way would you say here we might do this or we might do that and this would lead to a higher quality product where this would just be kind of bargain basement tofu. Yeah, you know what, people might think it's very, very complicated but it's not, it's all pretty much a lot to do with sanitation. Yes, need to oh, okay. do a lot of cleaning and uh, pay a lot of attention to sanitation and also the process control. Mm-hmm. Besides, you know, you have to have the basic uh, technology. Uh, like this small little tofu maker, they they don't typically pasteurize the products. Uh, probably they don't have the equipment and they don't have the know-how. Mm-hmm. And uh, But once you have this what we I would call a basic uh, required uh, uh, equipment for making a uh, product in the refrigerated shelves. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have to be pasteurized, and uh, right. so once you have that, then uh, it's really your process control and make sure that the product is indeed uh, pasteurized, and then also you make sure that the uh, you. You spend enough time on doing the cleaning and sanitation. Right. Yeah, that's that's about it. Obviously, you have the problem with the the energy costs in shipping the stuff around. But is the is the overall demand for tofu among mainstream consumers? Are you seeing that grow? So that may offset that, or is it has it kind of peaked? I mean, it's, it's certainly within the '90s into the early part of the century. It was people were suddenly saying, "Oh, I can eat tofu after all." Yeah. Is that still going up, or are you kind of fighting for every consumer now? I think now with the mainstream market, it's pretty steady. Saturated. Well, it, it's you know, there's a group of people that they they learn about tofu and then they incorporate it into their diets, and those are the people that have been buying the tofu, and uh, and it's still not a very large uh, percentage. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot to do has a lot to do with the education and uh, because tofu is so foreign to the uh, to the Caucasian or non-Asian market uh, population you know and uh, the non-Asian population I mean including the Caucasian the Hispanic the uh, the African Americans and they, they, they're just so foreign to them right so they have to know how to cook them right and that's very that's difficult but so you you have um, you do make the tofu here. You have uh, do you also make soy milk? Yeah, we make soy milk. Okay. And uh, but see the uh, it's like for example our soy milk. It we don't even have it in the uh, mainstream market because the soy milk is very different from what you can get from the mainstream market. Mm-hmm. And it's it has a lot to do with the cultural background, and uh, for the Asian consumer. We like the soy milk as to have a as strong a soybean taste as possible. All right. For the mainstream product, you have to get rid of all that smell. That's so called the uh, yeah. one of the most hated uh, bini taste. Right. Bini. right. <laughs> and uh, you know, There's so the the, the soybean company they do a lot of uh, uh, they they remove that the uh, uh, taste from uh, uh, through. Uh, 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 variety improvement like breeding and those breedings and uh, program and, and those type of uh, a uh, high-tech uh, uh, methods to remove certain enzymes that 
that originally present naturally in the in the soybean, and uh, right. so it wouldn't produce that uh, that that smell. Or that you're taste. over there breeding them to taste even no, stronger. No, right? on the <laughs> other hand, we were, we just had a meeting with a soybean uh, uh, grower, and uh, we said we need the soybean that has a strong right. taste as possible. Just leave it there. Don't move. Don't don't take them out. You know, and but. Besides that, and the other, if you look at, for example, you go into the uh, the uh, mainstream grocery store and get a uh, a bottle of those soy milk and a plain, no, right, unsweetened plain soy milk. You read that, you read the the ingredient statement. It has additional ingredient in there. So even like if we're talking silk, for example, if you think you're getting the Plain unvarnished product. They're still yes. kind of adulterated. There is. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't call that adulterated. Well, they, I mean, it's legal. They add it sure. in there to mask the uh, the soybean flavor. Right. To mask, you know, to mask it to knock it down. Right. Also, that's part of the what they call yeah, the flavor masking. Right. And um, and it's a big business in uh, in the flavor industry to well, do now, the flavor masking. But going back to the Asian community and their conception of soy milk, soy products, um, I mean, it is known that uh, the Asian population genetically is, is has a higher rate of lactose intolerance, and yeah. over in Asia, you don't see that much milk drinking, but I'm wondering, for Asian Americans, do they, is there a, a lot of people who come over and try to adopt the cow's milk kind of uh, lifestyle, or do they, do they stick with you know, the straight soy milk or what? I've not? seen both. Yeah. I mean, I myself was a lactose intolerant person in, uh, mm -hmm. in uh, years ago starting, and you actually can adapt uh, adapt to uh, to the right. to the uh, to the cow's milk and uh, and uh, reverse that process. At least uh, mm -hmm. you know it worked for some people. Mm -hmm. But some people I've seen even some of my friends, and they just cannot drink milk. Right, they just cannot. But you you like forced yourself to to drink so yeah. that you could yeah. get over there. What was the what was the attraction to you? Just being able to, I mean, I you wanted to be able to walk into a Wawa and get a drink anytime you wanted. <laughs> I don't. Well, my 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 motivation was different. You know, I I studied dairy at school, and ah, if okay. I cannot drink milk, why should I get into a dairy? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> why should I studying dairy? You know, so yeah. my motivation was different. Right, and, and you uh, and you grew up here, though. No, no, no. So this was back. Where where did you grow up? Back um, back twenty some years ago when I first came over to the to the to the uh, to this country. Okay, but it was yeah. it was in America where you were yes. first getting indoctrinated into the yeah the dairy lifestyle. Yes, because there there was no milk over there. Right over there uh, back home in China right. at that time, you know. Now now we we uh, we starting seeing some. Fresh milk and those uh, being delivered to the uh, to the residents and uh, at least in the in the city. Right. And you can buy a lot of uh, a lot more dairy products, the the uh, the beverage type of dairy product, not cheeses and those right. kind of stuff. But before we we had mostly like milk, mm -hmm. you know, milk powder, and mm -hmm. that was even at a very tight supply. Yeah. Supply well, what do you, let me just ask you, what do you think about the the phenomenon of something that's basically a Caucasian product because I mean it's Caucasians are the only population that are that are majority not lactose intolerant yeah taking that and saying you know going over to China and here you know forget that beanie 
soy milk, start drinking this. I mean, is that, is that a good thing or is that, uh, do you have a little reservation about that? Well, put it that way, it's not going to happen and regardless of what I think. Well, no, I just... <laughs> because the, uh, the, the, the Chinese people, the, the Asian people, even though they can, uh, they can have a, um, a plenty of supply of, uh, supplies of, uh, of dairy milk, they still have that love for the soy milk because uh-huh. that's, that's what you it's almost like in your gene or something right. you know? uh-huh. and that's what you grew up with and uh, that's what uh, you know so it's going to be hard to, to overcome or to get rid of it. okay well here's hoping but uh, so you think the milk and dairy will likely remain kind of a boutique kind of a niche product rather than something that becomes a mainstay of people's diets over there at least for a foreseeable right. period of time because, uh, you know, now we're talking about that in China, right? Not yeah. here. No, and, uh, here because, got it well because, established here. Because of the uh, populations, the large populations, and also the, uh, the underdeveloped uh, dairy industry. Right. You need a lot of lands and right. <laughs> well, so to to raise enough cows to produce enough milk right. to, for to uh, to uh, supply to uh, one point something billion people. Well, you know? yeah. So that's that's that not that's a that's a that's a little, uh, a big task. Right. So on the other hand, soy milk is relatively easy. Mm-hmm. You know, you can ship the dry soybean to anywhere, and they can grind it and extract it and uh, uh, and cook it up and uh, make soy milk. Um, so are you, I mean, talking about the various applications, you're, you already are taking soybeans and kind of uh, developing different things from them. Do you have anything else in the in the works or in the pipeline to expand your your overall product line or to well, get into different markets where yeah. you might not have been in before? Actually, a couple of years ago when we were decided to uh, look into the mainstream market or the non-Asian market and that's what we realized we cannot go into the market with the same uh, family of products that mm. the Asian consumer like. Really? So we developed a brand new line of products that still no one in the country has. And right. we go to the trade show and we were the first one and everybody was uh, surprised and shocked that we people you can make tofu into product like that you know in the uh, in your in your in your diet you eat a lot of uh, sandwich right and sure. uh, you you go to the supermarket you have lots of lunch meat where you can uh, right. they already eat a pre-slice or it comes in a block and you go to the deli and slice it and we make tofu the same way yeah I know have, you have the slice we have the tofu that's sandwich. already sliced mm-hmm. and even has it flavored uh, flavored like uh, similar to the uh, poultry type of a lunch meat right. but there's still a vegan product it's yeah. all uh, there's no animal derived ingredients in there and we also had to wrap uh, uh, a product uh, I mean that that pre-sliced product mm-hmm. you know vacuum pack pre-sliced it's already on the market and that that's that's basically a convenient yeah provide convenience to consumer and then they don't have to uh, think about cooking it. Right. Put it there, just use it like a, a slice of lunch meat. Right. And we also have a new product, hasn't gone to the uh, market or anybody yet. I've shown it to a few people and they 
we all love it very much. It's a, it's a total, it's a totally flavored product. It's like a, almost like a block of uh, cheese. You know, okay. it's like uh, about four inch by four inch mm -hmm. uh, cross section and about uh, ten inches long mm -hmm. vacuum seal like a block. And then it's similar to where you go to the uh, the deli in the supermarket. They put it into the slicer and slice as right, much okay. you want. And so that product can put it in the slicer. People, uh, the user can put it in a slicer and just slice it like that. So you're looking, are you looking to get get that into delis and just have have it as another thing that people might hopefully ask for yeah hopefully you're constantly but, uh, coming up with new ways here i can tell uh we actually do have plenty of new products but uh, uh one of the thing is is also getting the product is one thing and getting it, getting it into the market is another thing right. uh it requires a lot of investment and <laughs> yeah so uh and uh, we, as you see, we are, we are not a, a huge food manufacturer as far as right. matter of fact, if you look into the food manufacturing business, we are considered to be small. Right. And well, in tofu, it's a large, but in, in if you consider that as a part of the food industry, it's still very small, you know. Well, that's that's more room uh, to grow. You, uh, you look at big manufacturer, you know, like uh, Kraft, General Foods, and all, of and get a new products, make it successful on a uh, regional level, or even uh, I mean national level, or even regional level or local level. It takes a lot of uh, mm -hmm. uh, financial resources. I can imagine. You know. Well, let me just uh, ask my last question, I guess. Uh, as you know, the podcast is for uh, people who are already interested in vegetarianism and veganism. But even among those popular, do you have anything that a message that you would like to get to those listeners about tofu, or a misconception, or a myth that people might have, or should we all be trying to train ourselves to drink that uh, that beanie <laughs> beanie well, flavored soy milk? The beanie flavored soy milk is is really a personal choice. But one thing that I one one thing that I would have for the consumer is that just don't be afraid of it and uh, just try try different things with it and then it might you you might be surprised what you can do with a with a um, an ingredient that you think that is uh, you know the first time you say what is that how am I going to use it but right it's not just for stir fry yeah after you try it a few times you can uh, you will you will you will uh, uh, you might be surprised. You know, mm -hmm. and if you are already afraid of it, and you won't, you won't touch it. Yeah. Right. And tofu or soy does offer a lot of uh, uh, health benefits. Right. You know, it's high. It's a very high quality protein. Provides you very high quality protein. Very little saturated fat. No sure. cholesterol. And you know, right. a lot of those. Uh, uh, a lot of those uh, good health benefits. Yeah. And let alone that, you will never get. Met cows or <laughs> bird flu or anything like right. that. <laughs> you would never get that. <laughs> right, okay. Well, you talked me into it. All right, well, thanks. Uh, I know you have to get back to running the place, and I appreciate you taking the time no, to talk to me. No problem. And, uh, and again, that's Nature Soy. You can find them on the web at yeah. naturesoy.com. Yeah, www.naturesoy.com. Okay, and... 
Thank you, Gene Huff, for being with us on VegCast. On the Thank you. If my love was a song, if my love was a song, I blow the wind right through your heart so you'd sing along. If my love was a flame, if my love was a flame, I light the stars behind the sun. If my love was the rain, I'd soak you through and through. The drops on you would melt into the summer's dew. If my love was the sky, if my love was the sky, I'd swirl the clouds into a dream. My love is only a dream. My love isn't real. So I sing this song to tell you how I feel. If my love were the stars, I'd shoot them straight across the galaxy of rainbows, and we'd never see. Pearson EJ with Flame, and you can find out more about Maggie Pearson EJ at their website at mpeband.com. And now, science. Occasionally on Science Fact, we bring you a report that is not from a peer-reviewed scientific journal, but is significant enough and credible enough to report on in the same breath, in the same context, and this is certainly one of those. Uh, it is not so remarkable for the fact, uh, which I don't think uh, any of my listeners will be surprised by any of uh, the findings of this report, but where it's coming from, this is from a 15-member commission of experts with varying backgrounds convened by the Pew Charitable Trusts and Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Uh, this was released uh, at the end of April. And uh, this 
report that we're going to be reading from is a story in the Washington Post, and the headline is, Report Urges Huge Changes to Factory Farming Practices. Let me just read the whole uh, first couple paragraphs of this to give you some idea of the scope of this. Factory farming takes a big toll on human health and the environment, is undermining rural America's economic stability, and fails to provide the humane treatment of livestock, concludes an independent two-and-a-half-year analysis that calls for major changes in the way corporate agriculture produces meat, milk, and eggs. The report, sponsored by the Pew Charitable Trust and John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and released Tuesday, finds that the, quote, economies of scale, unquote, long used to justify factory farming practices, are largely an illusion perpetuated by a failure to account for associated costs. Among those costs are human illnesses caused by drug-resistant bacteria associated with the rampant use of antibiotics on feedlots and the degradation of land, water, and air quality caused by animal waste too intensely concentrated to be neutralized by natural processes. This report is uh, called Putting Meat on the Table, Industrial Farm Production in America. And uh, again, it has a lot of common sense recommendations and common sense findings about what a disaster factory farming has been uh, for the animals, for the people involved, and for the environment. Uh, But it is possible that there will be some fallout for this because uh, when reports come out from the Pew Charitable Trust and also the Johns Hopkins School, people tend to pay some attention. And uh, one of the key aspects of this is the use of antibiotics. Uh, It appears that the vast majority of U.S. antibiotic use is for animals. Now, that's something that uh, has long been the Union of Concerned Scientists has been uh, saying that they thought that this was true. Uh, And again, this story says it appears, so it's not definite yet. But just think about that. The majority, the vast majority of antibiotics used in America are being used on farm animals. Uh, The commission noted adding that because of the lack of oversight by the Food and Drug Administration and other agencies, even regulators can only estimate how many drugs are being given uh, to animals. And in terms of uh, waste, we should also point out the Pew Report also calls for tighter regulation of factory farm waste, finding that toxic gases and dust from animal waste are making workers and neighbors ill. Uh, so one takeaway from this, uh, I believe, is that whatever the actual fallout is in terms of policy changes, in terms of uh, companies actually changing their own practices, which, of course, they they could make small changes and still say that they're uh, complying with this report. So I don't want to overhype that. But uh, let's drive home the fact that this is finding that factory farm practices are hurting people. They're hurting. They're taking a big toll on human health. Uh, they're making workers ill. They're making neighbors ill. So don't give me any of that crap about animal advocates caring more about the well-being of animals than about that of humans because people who are eating anything from factory farms are contributing to the degradation of the human health 
of the workers and the neighbors as well as their own. But that's their own uh, decision to make. Uh, but basically says to me that uh, anyone who's doing that doesn't cares more about their own meat eating than uh, the health of humans. And that's a perspective that may or may not be there inherent or implicit in this report, but it's certainly a perspective that is brought out when I come along to read you the science fact. And that's going to just about do it for this VegCast, but since this is turning out to be kind of a Philly-centric VegCast, I should just uh, put in a note here from my old pals at Public Eye Artists for Animals. Uh, they have a series of uh, performances going on at local libraries that if you happen to be around Philadelphia, you can catch these. Uh, it's a show called The Unhuggables. It's a storytelling performance featuring stories about less-than-cuddly animals to foster empathy and respect for local wildlife. And uh, the description uh, says professional storytellers, puppeteers, and musicians will perform for family audiences at local libraries. Now, this premiered uh, back on May 10th at the Lovett Library. Uh, you can catch them June 8th from 2 to 3 p.m. at the Central Library of the Free Library of Philadelphia. On June 14th from 2 to 3 at the Chestnut Hill Library. Or June 21st from 2 to 3 at Falls Schuylkill Library. You can find more information about that at Public Eye Philly. Okay, that is going to do it for VegCast 44. We'll be back with you real soon. I cannot say for sure whether it's going to be before the end of May, but I tell you that we will have two more VegCasts before Summerfest, which starts June 18th, so you can take that to the bank. At any rate, thanks to our sponsors, Temptation Vegan Ice Cream, the world's greatest non-dairy ice cream. You can check them out at GoTemptation.com. Thanks to Maggie Pierce and EJ for the permission to play their music on VegCast. And thanks, of course, to Gene Huff for taking us on a tour of Nature's Soy. Until next time, get out there and live like you mean it. VegCast.